0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Inside Asia podcast from the Center for Asian Democracy here at the University of Louisville. This is Dave Buckley, CAD's director and Paul Weber Endowed Chair of Politics, Science, and Religion. I'm joined, as always, on the interviewer's side of the mic by Dr. Ashani Dasgupta, CAD's postdoctoral fellow. Ashani, how are you doing on this warm spring afternoon?
1: Really loving the weather.
0: Yeah, yeah, until the latest round of destructive storms roll through this evening, so it's, uh, it's going <laughs> great. Um, Thanks to the great leadership of our colleague, Tori Dahl, CAD's podcast channel has been freshened up. Episodes are accessible through our website at the University of Louisville, as well as through Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search Center for Asian Democracy, subscribe, review and stay up to date on future content. We have a very special conversation today, uh, focused on democracy and rights in Afghanistan, 18 months after the old regime's fall and the return of the Taliban to power. Today's conversation is actually part one of what's going to be a two-part series. Uh, We'll be joined by Mr. Jawad Potwal for both. Jawad is an Afghanistan native who fled the country after the American withdrawal. Mr. Potwal served in a wide range of governmental and non-governmental organizations in Afghanistan over two decades. This included work as a former staff member of the Afghanistan National Security Council, head of policy within the office of the President of Afghanistan, and several international organizations, including the International Development Law Organization, Save the Children, International Relief and Development, and the Afghanistan Midwives Organization. Jawad holds an MA in political science from the University of Louisville, where he served as a Fulbright Scholar. Uh, And I know I speak for everybody here when I say how proud we are to have him as an alum of our department, and how much we enjoyed our time with him. We talked with Jawad via video in October, 2021, uh, almost immediately after his arrival in the United States. Um, That was a time when everything was obviously very fresh. The video of that conversation, not just with Jawad, but also with other academics and policymakers, uh, is available on our YouTube channel and and on our website. Um, But I'm so glad to have the chance to talk with him today um, and in our upcoming second episode for a little bit of a longer picture view um, of how he looks back on his work in the country and looks forward about the future prospects um, for a legacy of that work in uh, in the years to come. Ashani, I'm curious, what stood out to you uh, about our conversation today?
1: Uh, you know, listening to how civil society and women's rights have been completely upturned was, uh, is always heartbreaking. But what was insightful was the way in which he articulated the dissonance between policies and policymakers' understanding and grassroots reality. And uh, he has, uh, I felt like he has a great knowledge in that front.
0: Yeah, he showed an anthropologist sensibility there. Yes. We'll give credit to <laughs> our cousins in the social sciences. <laughs> Um, As I said, this is going to be a two-part conversation. Today we're going to be talking with Jawad mostly about uh, his assessment of uh, his own work in Afghanistan and also where the country is today. Um, We'll come back for a second conversation that focuses on the international nature of uh, the Afghan community today, uh, focusing on uh, those seeking refugee status, asylum status, um, and making their lives in various ways um, in the United States, around the West, um, and in the region. Um, So, without any further ado, here is Mr. Jawad Patwal. And here we are today. Uh, welcome, Jawad Patwal. Thanks so much for joining us, Jawad. We're really looking forward to the chance to uh, to talk with you about uh, all of your experiences in the past uh, couple of years. Of course, it's my pleasure to be here. Um, maybe we could start out talking about uh, your own role in democracy and governance work in Afghanistan over the years. Um, you had a wide range of experiences, both in civil society and NGO work and in government. Um, what kind of projects did you work on during your time in, uh, in the uh, democratic sector in, in the country? Um, and what do you really remember most about your work during that period?
2: Um, whenever I look back into the whole journey of my work experience uh, starting around 2010 until August 2021, uh, I would say I was involved like in three main sectors. Uh, when I would say, both like, most of it's important to clarify that most of my work was with international organizations and then for a short period of time i was also working with afghan ex-afghan government uh and uh considering my all all experience of the past like 10 years i would say i will divide it like in three sectors the first one was like uh i was Kindly focused on human rights and women empowerment, uh, where I was working with some international organizations, including International Development Law Organization um, and some other organization, in order to uh, in order to advocate and promote rule of law, human rights, and uh, women's uh, rights. That was the first sector. And another uh, big sector that I was involved was humanitarian work, which I was uh, working with uh, including one of the projects of the USA, United States Agency for International Development, where um, we were providing uh, assistance to those families who were affected by international security assistance forces like by their operations, especially to those families who lost a member of their family because of like innocent people because of their operations uh, um, uh, in Afghanistan. And my focus where I was uh, located, my focus was in uh, north of Afghanistan. So we were providing small grants and also providing technical assistance to these uh, families uh, in order to help them with their livelihood and how ki- kind of like compensate. Of course, you cannot compensate if, if they have lost someone in their family due to this operation, but still we were trying uh, like the, 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 um, uh, the mission of the uh, organization that I was working with I was working with was to provide assistance to these families who are affected directly or indirectly. Uh, that's another big part of my ten years, almost ten years of of experience with international organizations. And about the third, I would say it's it was mostly um, democracy and good governance, where I was democracy promotion and good governance. I was involved, and in this category, I was when I uh, in two thousand around two thousand seventeen and eighteen. Mid in teen, I was working as a head of policy uh, and communications with the administrative office of the president. And there, uh, we were mostly. I was focused. Some of my areas that I was focused was strategic communication and also um, uh, and, and also uh, kind of combating corruption and, and, and different institutions. Um, and I provided some policy recommendations for anti-corruption, and and and, and did some other uh, good governance uh, uh, policy-related uh, uh, work uh, for the for different institutions, uh, especially when the uh, when uh, like when you uh, and especially when it's administrative office. So almost all the reports are coming from like different ministries. So you kind of need a mechanism in order to compile and, uh, and 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 make the important things come first, you know? Uh, so that was another big uh, part of my work, but the democracy promotion and uh, good governance, it was not only with, uh, with the Afghan government, but also I was involved with other international organization including German international cooperation. We were where we were uh, working with the subnational government, providing capacity building trainings and kind of uh, 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 doing capacity building work on both sides government and also providing the means for the public in order to uh, to demand more accountability from the government sector.
1: Uh, Thanks. Your work has been quite expansive in the democracy and the social development sector. Uh, But looking back at that period now, uh, what do you think were the big obstacles you faced in your work? uh, Were there opportunities missed to further strengthen democratic institutions in the country?
2: Of course, as it is with... uh with all I think uh, democracy building efforts and international kind of internet, providing like international support to, to, to nations or the countries around the world, there are there are of course a lot of challenges when you're uh, uh, doing all those work. And um, I would say uh, there were of course challenges as is w- with most of the work, um, but i would i would divide these sections i like, like on, on two sections on on two sections one is uh, when it comes to like international organizations when i was involved with them and another is with the government i think when it comes to the international organizations uh, one of of course the list that i will be providing is not like inclusive of course there are many other obstacles that might be out there, but it's what I can say right now is uh, like with international organization is that, uh, there was always, when I was involved with them, there was always kind of a lack of a comprehensive vision, you know, Mm -hmm. like where we really want, like where we are going, you know, as a whole, like as an organization. And most of the organizations I was involved with were like project-based, so some of these organizations were writing their like proposals based on specific criteria from donors. And uh, I had, a, uh, I think almost uh, when the collapse happened after some time, I had a conversation with one of my supervisor who is a Canadian. And we were talking about like uh, how some of like, we were colleagues, so we talk how uh, one of the uh, kind of project we was working was kind of like like they didn't really know like what really they want to achieve and also some of those work were like done by another organization so there was a lot of kind of like a, a overlapping mm. And most of like the, I think the, the big concern for some of the organizations, of course, not all, uh, I really wanna clarify this point is that for some of the organization were like, they were looking for funding and to to get that funding. So they were, uh, and of course, when you're looking for funding the donors communities or donor countries, they also have a specific uh, criteria. And they were kind of trying to fit those criteria. And at the same time, some of those who were writing these proposals were international staff and they were not in contact with that reality on the ground. So there was a gap between what's going on the ground and and what they're offering. Uh, Or what's the real, like the basic needs of people on the ground and and, and, and that was something maybe that was something different in some of the cases and what they were offering was something different. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so at the end of the project, you would feel kind of like like there were there were no concrete uh, kind of like uh, uh, ach- big achievements that you can count on, especially when it comes to the changes that you brought to the lives of people. Like I was involved in capacity building trainings for 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 like a for instance like judiciary system, and some of the people I've talked with senior government officials they said like we have received this each training maybe like five or six or seven or ten times <laughs> and 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 like I was and I was like, why are we are doing this again uh. So I think uh, one of the challenges, in order, like for me to kind of summarize it, I would say there was a lack of alignment between, uh, between what's going on the ground or what's needed on the ground, what people really needs or the system
0: really needs and what's the donor community offering. And how did your thoughts then change once you got to work in government? What were the, how would you say the challenges changed in, the, in that kind of a role?
2: And, and uh, when, when I went to the back to government, I think that, again, I felt the same thing, that there is a, a big lack of comprehensive vision from the government, from the international community, and from the people. There is no... A, in some cases, there is a, like, there is no vision, a big vision of where we're going. And in some cases, even if there were some visions, there were no alignments between the government, international community, and what really people want. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest reasons that contributed to this situation, especially from kind of lack of touch with the on the ground, with the was like lack of security. Because uh, as a, as a human, whenever like you're not able to feel secure, like mentally, uh, I think a lot of international stuff they were not able to travel. Also, national stuff. We had I had a, a like a very hard time traveling. Sometimes when I was especially working with with one of the project of the. A use ID, like I would take the risk, like a big risk of like maybe on this trip, I won't be able to return back. You know, so, the, so so you would take a big risks and most of the assistance that I was delivering with all my team, community mobilizer, procurement staff, like there will be a lot of like security forces around us kind of providing us security. Mm. Uh, so it was very hard, like Kind of to touch base with the uh, with the uh, w- with the reality, what's going on with the people, and uh, and 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 I think lack of security uh, kind of kind of was a big factor on that one.
1: Uh, going to the Taliban now, the Taliban has uh, been in power for roughly a year and a half. Uh, how would you generally characterize the Taliban's behavior now that they are back in the government? Um, you know from information you can gather is there anything different about their approach to power now
2: uh well whenever i'm like personally whenever i'm approaching an issue or a problem or whatever like of course we have in any issue or problem we have like the trunk kind of the root of the the thing and then we have branches Mm. um i think in order for for me like in order to characterize them, uh, personally, I think it would be very good that we need to track back, go back, like where they're coming from, you know. And if we see the history, um, uh, the history of, of of like the history of the Taliban, uh, there is a person by the name of Mullah Samuel Haq who is given the title of who was given the title of father of taliban and he has a he has many and many uh, madrasas or seminaries in khyber Pakhtunkhwa province of pakistan which is kind of border with afghanistan mm-hmm. and the founder of taliban mullah Umar, he he was also one of his students among many and this is a this these madrasas most of them are receiving funding from the like the Pakistan government there are a lot of reports out there there are evidence because these madrasas are like kind of graduate like hundreds and thousands of students are graduating from these madrasas and these graduations are like not possible without like sufficient fundings uh, so, if you want to characterize them, you need to go back and see what they're taught in these, in these uh in these seminaries. It's mostly an extremism version of Islam, where there is almost no rights for women, no education for women, where they don't believe in freedom. Uh, it's just like a, a an, an an ideological and an ideologically extremist schools or madrasas who kind of uh, I would say brainstorm kids from very early age in order to use them for their big geopolitical or strategic purposes in the region. And back and uh, coming back to your question. I would say like, it's just not, I'm not saying just like, like I, I think I'm not the only person who is saying, if you see all the reports uh, uh, out there, you would see like there is no change in their behavior from what they were doing uh, and starting from 1996 uh, until 2001 um, and and from considering human rights, women rights, like, uh, freedom, um, uh, respecting human dignity, uh, you wouldn't see all, almost all of them, you know, and and, 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 w- and and what they're like doing right now in Afghanistan, including from women's education, uh, the, the ban on, uh, uh, like up, starting from sixth grade, uh, women are not allowed to go to school, they're not allowed to go to work, work with NGOs. And, and there is no like, there is no freedom at all. There is no human rights.
0: I'm wondering, Jawad, if you can um, give us a little bit of your assessment of um, the actual decision-making within the Taliban right now, right? I think most Americans just understand that the Taliban are back, right? As sort of one organization, but that doesn't really tell us anything about who is the most influential figure, how decisions are being made. Um, there's some reports about potential internal divisions potentially between those in Kabul or those in Kandahar um, or maybe, uh, you know, other kinds of internal divisions. Do you have any sense of that? Like how, how the actual decision-making is, uh, is being structured right now and whether there's any internal uh, diversity or internal differences uh, among the leadership that are important to uh, analyze. Initially uh, they say like there
2: is a, They have a shura, and of course they have a leader uh, uh, who is said like like they say that he makes most of the big decisions, and also the shura, which is established, they make some of these big decisions. Uh, those are what they say, uh, and of course some of these decisions, especially like minor decisions, might be coming from them, from these uh, leadership and this shura. But again, I think. Most of Afghan uh, publics, uh, Afghan people, uh, they're uh, skeptical of, of these uh, claims. And they think uh, most of the big decisions are highly influenced by, uh, by, by uh, uh, Pakistani military establishments. And and some of these leaders of of, of of Taliban who are like in Afghanistan, most of their families are still in Pakistan. And uh, I remember as a kid when because of the war we were we left Afghanistan and and we were living in Pakistan. Um, so some of uh, and and in Koyuta, we, as a kid, I I I remember uh, that uh, one day. Uh, I, I know it's kind of like a little bit like, uh, uh, like not very directly related, but still I would say it like one day our, my father was a pharmacist so one day. Uh, I think my father had kind of conversation with some of these people who were uh, like very uh, kind of a supporter of the Taliban, uh, it was around 2000 2001 or something like that, and. Uh, and And, uh, my father defended uh, the said something about like the I would like women's rights, human rights in Afghanistan, and all those uh, the basic uh, necessities of humans. Uh, but uh, uh, the next day, uh, they kind of all run into our our pharmacy and destroyed almost everything and my father was not able to return like our family was kind of far away from there it was like an hour something like that drive but my father was not able to return back to the pharmacy and um, so so the whole area was like the whole uh, the quetta which is a prov- which is a, a, a place in pakistan this is where uh, like the, the the they also call it, call it like the quetta shora which is like the top leaders of the Taliban were residing there and making the, but of course by high influence of the military, Pakistan military establishment they were making the decisions. Um, and and I would say they say that we're making the decision, but it's highly influenced. But what by what the, the the military establishment in Pakistan
0: wants. Um. So we're now just coming through um, the second winter since the Taliban came back into power. Obviously, um, there was an almost immediate humanitarian crisis right after um, the, the old government fell and the Taliban came into power. Um, do you have any sense of how the humanitarian situation has gone in the past two winters, um, and what steps uh, international donors have taken or even might take differently um, to address the humanitarian situation in the in the country? I think the humanitarian crisis is a it's a a,
2: a, a big like uh, I would say it's a, the biggest challenge that Afghan people are facing right now. Uh, there were many marched by women, uh, like in the past year or more than a year. And most of these marches, cha- when in uh, uh, most of these marches, women were chanting, they were saying, like, we want, uh, they were just uh, uh, saying three words, bread, job, and freedom. Uh and in a in a in a society like Afghanistan, which is uh, uh, which is uh, like kind of conservative, whenever women's come out on the streets, and then they use these three words that they need bread, they need job, and then they freedom. So that's uh, imply that the situation is like worse. And according to official statistics from UN organizations around like twenty eight million people, almost two and three people, they're in in need of basic uh, like in, in basic uh, kind of like a basic uh, human assistance. Um, so poverty is is a is a huge challenge facing almost everyone and 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 uh, and there is a what makes things worse is that there is like high level of corruption. Uh, uh, in in the past, like one passport, like Afghan passport, if you wanted to get a passport, it will cost maybe around like $20 or 30 something around that. Now, because of high level of corruption and because a lot of people cannot endure what's going on in the country right now, they're applying for passport, and each passport now kind of. I've talked with some people, they have paid like around 2000 US dollars for just one passport. 2000 US dollars is a big amount of money in Afghanistan, and still people are trying to find that amount of money in order to find a way in order to leave the country. Uh, So I would say like uh, this humanitarian situation, it's like a big crisis right now in Afghanistan. And uh, and, and I think there is a need for a coordinated international uh, intervention in order to help uh, the Afghan public. Otherwise, especially with the winter coming
0: on, it will get Worse and worse. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, and just so our listeners know, we're actually going to be having a second half of this conversation with Jawad, um, where we will discuss questions tied to the refugee community that's been created by the um, by the uh, fall of the old government. And so we'll come back to some of these questions about humanitarian assistance in that context, also in our in our second conversation. Um, so
1: Jawad, any vulnerable regime, basically. Uh, will have the incentive to portray itself favorably to some uh, in the international community. And like you've pointed out several times, the status of women were a particular concern after Taliban returned to power. Um, However, you know, the Taliban officials are giving early indications that repression would not uh, return to old patterns, Um, especially the progress that women have made uh, over the last few years, have you see, do you see all of it being dismantled? Um, how would you summarize change in the status of women in the country in the past 18 months?
2: Yeah, I would say all of the uh, progress, especially for those women who are still in Afghanistan, everything is reversed back. They're back at home. They're not able to, even their, they're prohibited to going to parks, restaurants, uh, whenever they, they, they're traveling, they're required to be accompanied by a family member or a, like a, someone who is, they call it like a mahram, either a brother, a husband, or, 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 or some, a father. Uh, so so they, they cannot even travel. They cannot go out to parks or restaurants. Uh, they cannot work with angels. Uh, so I would say, yeah, everything is almost reversed and dismantled. Also, I'd like one one part I forgot uh, to, yeah. to to kind of mention uh, about uh, the question that Ishani asked me before. They don't allow education schools for Afghans, girls and women, you know, like the work. but. When you see the lead, like the, the some of these leaders' uh, daughters and their families, they're living in, uh, in other countries and they're going to school, including Pakistan, Qatar, and some of other countries. Their families are there. Their uh, daughters are receiving education, and all the the the, the like uh, all the uh, I would say like the uh, human rights uh, kind of like the. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say privileges, but the the basic rights that that uh, girls need, uh, they're receiving uh, some of these education and in, in other countries because their families are living there. So this is a kind of a big discrepancy between how they're treating Afghan women, Afghan girls, and how they and how they change when it comes to their own family members who are living in some of other countries.
0: Maybe, could you just say a little bit more about when you were working on uh, issues of, of gender in the country um, early in your career, um, how much progress was being made or what did you, what was your lived experience in that kind of work? Did it seem like there really was progress being made, that there really were sort of uh, populations that wanted that kind of change in society. How do you look back on that part of your work, especially?
2: Yeah, I would say uh, starting from 2001 until uh, uh, 2021, around like 20 years, there were a lot of progress made, even though uh, we had challenges, we had problems, and of course, with uh, if you if if one sees like all the development work around the world with each progress of course whenever nations are or communities are uh, kind of like developing or, or progressing there there of course will be challenges and uh, I've, i i had the privilege of working with a lot of women's girls um, and 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 and, uh, and uh, there was a lot of freedom you know uh, there was uh, the freedom to choose where do you want to study, where do you want to study, where do you want to work, what kind of work do you want to do, um, and 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 most of uh, of of of, uh, of the generation like uh, people who were working from 2000 to two thousand one, all had a very uh, I would say a very uh, they had a a hopeful um, uh, prospect for for the future considering the development that were made in the past 20 years. And I think that's one big reason that whenever everything like in August 2021, uh, when the government collapsed, uh, so there was a, a lot of those who left the country, they were not kind of... Uh, they didn't want to come and talk about some of these issues because it was a big shock on their part and they couldn't process what happened. Uh, uh, Because initially what they had in mind was like everyone was trying their best, including myself. I came to the United States as a Fulbright Scholar in 2018 and I studied political science. uh, And in 2020, I went back with a strong uh, commitment in order to work further to promote um, uh, democracy and uh, freedom, all those like cherished values that uh, at least individual freedoms uh, that we had back in 1960s, and and, and uh, just for the record, like in um, uh, uh, Afghan women, they got the rights to suffrage or or the right to vote in 1919. It's, all, it's almost a year before the United States, here in the States, got the woman's uh, right to vote. Afghan had like the rights to vote. And if you see the constitution under, uh, under uh, uh, Daoud, or Sardar Daoud, you would see in the constitution, it's very clearly written that under this constitution, the, the men and the women, they have equal rights. Um, so the, so, so, so Afghan people in certain periods, they enjoyed, uh, uh, they enjoyed, uh, especially women they they, they had a, uh, freedom and all the right. And most of, if not all, most of the rights, uh, but, uh, seeing all those, like just kind of abruptly gone in a night, it was like, uh, it was, a, it was not a, of course, it was not a pleasant experience and it was hard. But still, uh, I want to emphasize, uh, Dr. Buckley, on your question that, yeah, we, in the past 20 years, of course, there were problems. Of course, there were challenges, including that the biggest challenges we had uh, in the country was like uh, cor- political corruption, um, um, lack of accountability, uh, Lack of good governance, there were a lot of challenges, but but still we had a lot of achievements, too, uh, that the past 20 years. Uh, 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 Afghan peoples, uh, together with international worked in order to attain those uh, achievements.
0: I'm wondering Jouad, if you could. Um... Pivot a little bit more again to the international stage. So you've talked already about Pakistan's very important role um, in in Afghanistan and in relationship to the to the Taliban. Um, We're obviously also in a period internationally of um, rivalry between the United States and China. Um, We've had the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has sort of cratered US Russia relations, obviously. And China and Russia have their own long histories related to Afghanistan. And um, I'd be curious for for your thoughts on how they've responded to the Taliban's return to power. Um, You know, Americans probably think of this mostly as an issue that impacts the United States, but Afghanistan is very close to geographically and historically, uh, Russia especially, but China also. What have your sense been about how those two uh, powers have responded to the Taliban's return to power?
2: Whenever there was a, a kind of like the talks of peace negotiation between Afghan government of that time and the Taliban and all, and all the parties, uh, of course, uh, you would, whenever by following media, you would sense that, uh, you would see that there was a lot of uh, uh, kind of, uh, what do you say, like there was a lot of interest in, in the part of like Russia and China in order to support like. Maybe like directly or indirectly the Taliban, you know, um, and uh, and when they came to power, uh, uh, I'm sure you have followed the the what happened whenever they came to uh, to Kabul capital, the first person like the first uh, uh, high government official from another country which visited. And and everything was worse, like when the collapse happened. But the first high-ranking government official was uh, uh, the director of ISI, Pakistan military establishment, and he was there. He was the first government official from the uh, from all the countries around the world to 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 be in Kabul, and and almost and one of the questions he told to a journalist that everything will be fine, everything will be good. So no worries, uh, and that implies a lot. And uh, and, 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 if, and when we were seeing the whole process, we would see there was a lot of interest from, uh, the, especially the Russia envoy I uh, Hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He he was uh, very optimistic of of uh, of uh, the, the Taliban and and. Uh, uh, and 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 there was some uh, indirect, I would say, uh, uh, conversations, or you call it support, uh, uh, between like Russia and all the three. And there were some 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 news too when the collapse happened. They said like that. I don't know how authentic it is, but they said like the Chinese were among some who visited the Bagram. Airbase where like Americans were mostly staying, uh, like uh, they were doing uh, kind of uh, uh, it was their center, you know, uh, operation center. But again, uh, uh, recently a few a few weeks ago, uh, the uh, Russia envoy he he expressed his concerns uh, over how what's going on in Afghanistan could destabilize. Uh, uh, Russia' interests and also destabilize the uh, the, the 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 whole region. Uh, so, uh, for some countries, maybe uh, like a, a, I would say a, a lack of a proper government or a group who is a, 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 an extremist group. For some for some countries, they will think they will benefit from it, but in the long term. Uh, I would say whatever is happening in Afghanistan or whatever will happen in Afghanistan, it won't remain in Afghanistan. So as Martin Luther King said, like, injustice anywhere in the world will be a threat to justice, uh, to justice in the world, like, everywhere. Uh, so uh, I would say whatever is happening in Afghanistan, what, whatever is happening to Afghan people, if there is no uh, coordinated uh, an international response, then it will be a a big challenge and to some extent a threat to peace and security around the globe.
1: Yeah, it's so true. Uh, Maybe we can conclude by discussing the legacy of democracy and civil society work in Afghanistan. Uh, Now we know that the picture right now is very difficult and yet we also know that a whole generation of afghans did experience a flowering of independent media an expansion of women's rights and forms of political participation so how do you think those experiences might matter to politics in afghanistan again either in the country or abroad in the diaspora
2: of course uh, like the past in the past 20 years especially in my generation uh, we have uh, we 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 have like learned a lot. We, uh, at least, we try to do as much as we can in order to build something back at home in Afghanistan, and with all the free media, uh, to certain extent, a free society, uh, we achieved some of, some of the goals. But but of course, we were not uh, the whole the whole process of of the democracy building uh, was uh, it had its own challenges. And uh, and uh, and of course we have learned from the past twenty years the democracy building process and some of these uh, uh, some of these people who 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 are some of them uh, are in Afghanistan and some of them left uh, Afghanistan uh, they're not uh, they're not just sitting there in other countries they wherever they are they're trying their best in order to find out. Means so they can help not just the society where they live, but also uh, the country they are coming from. And 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 and, and uh, uh, considering our experiences, past like twenty years' experiences on the ground, I think the whole uh, learning or observing first-hand experiences uh, of of uh, democracy building those are. Uh, those all are like valuable lessons that we can um, transmit it uh, uh, to, to kind of, uh, um, again, to kind of democracy promotion or democracy building back in, in Afghanistan and in other countries which are kind of struggling and, and democracy
0: building. Well, Jawad, I want to thank you so much for taking time to to share your perspectives with us. Um, Some listeners may remember that actually in the weeks immediately after um, the fall of Kabul, um, uh, we did a panel discussion uh, involving uh, including Jawad and also um, uh, experts here at University of Louisville and, uh, and in government and elsewhere in the academy where we focused on the short-term questions um, facing the country. That, that episode's available on, on CAD's website still, the YouTube uh, archive of that panel. Um, and it's a privilege to hear from you, Jawad, today with a little broader perspective because it was so fresh still for everyone uh, in those in those weeks immediately after the fall, But um, but you bring so much experience um, and expertise to these questions. And, and I've learned a lot from talking to you today and, and from getting to, to work with you and teach you over the years. So thanks again for being with us. And we'll look forward to uh, the second half of our conversation in coming weeks.
1: Thanks, Javad.
2: Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Buckley and Shani. Uh, It's a, It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot.
0: And to our listeners, uh, we're always glad to be back with you. Uh, Keep your eyes on CAD's Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram accounts. Um, Remember to subscribe to the Inside Asia podcast on services like Apple Podcasts and Spotify uh, for future episodes, including conversations with Jawad. Uh, We'll be back before too long. um, And until then, be well.